Hello there, this is Mark Bauerlein with another conversation. Before we get to it, a word about our sponsor. The University of Dallas is a premier Catholic liberal arts institution, renowned for its rigorous core curriculum and thriving graduate programs. Careers in ministry, teaching, business, humanities, and science are formed here. With campuses in Texas and Rome, Italy, students begin their pursuit of a life well-lived. We have two alums of Dallas here at First Things on staff, and they are both superb. For more information on the University of Dallas, visit udallas.edu. That's udallas.edu. Josiah Ober is professor in the School of Humanities and Sciences at Stanford University and senior fellow at the Hoover Institution. His books are The Rise and Fall of Classical Greece, Democracy and Knowledge, Innovation and Learning in Classical Athens, The Greeks and the Rational, The Discovery of Practical Reason, and a new book co-authored with Northwestern professor Brooke Manville on a timely subject, The Civic Bargain, How Democracy Survives. That's our topic today. Welcome, Professor Ober. Thank you very much. I'm delighted to be here. You begin with a sad fact about the United States, that we are at the moment in a state of, quote, democratic pessimism. A lot of negativity out there about U.S. democratic institutions. Why? I know this is a huge question, but if if you want to give us a, a capsule, why this dark civic mood right now? I think, Mark, that the the, the dark mood in the country is at least in part um, uh, because uh, we have polarized in a very particular kind of way. Um, uh, obviously, there's the left, white, uh, left right, um, blue, red polarization. But I think we've also really polarized in terms of what people think is um, the right way forward for the country, um, polarized in terms of what we understand America to be about. Um, and I think that um, the hardening um, of the idea that my way um, is the just way, um, that my way brings social justice, brings the right outcome, and that any compromise um, with my conception of what is right um, is utterly wrong, um, is immoral, um, is uh, a compromise with um, basic good itself, um, uh, is, I think, um, really antithetical to the very um, uh, practice of democracy. So our book is really about uh, why it is important to recognize that as a citizen of a democratic state, you'll never be able to get 100% of what you want because you exist in a pluralistic society with uh, which other people want something quite different. Until we get over the idea that it's my way or the highway, um, that politics is a zero-sum game in which there are winners and losers, and unless we win everything, then we've lost everything, um, I think that we're in trouble. I think that's what we're trying to push against. And, and I think we see this actually reflected in that key term in your title. You don't begin with laws and principles. It is a civic bargain. You mentioned negotiation, compromise. It's a, it's a bargain. And you don't mean, oh, there's, there's a certain kind of bargain that you can make in order to have, in order to have this kind of civic. No, 
In order to have any civics in an open society, it's a matter of a bargain. Now, uh, you lay out actually seven, quote, essential conditions in, in, in this bargain. Uh, that, is, that a, is that a high bar? Is that, is that almost, I mean, it, sound, it sounds pretty, pretty remarkable that, that it ever happened. Yeah, um, and indeed, I think democracy, if we look historically, um, in large, complex, sophisticated societies, is rare. Um, it is hard to get, and it is hard to keep. I think that one of the mistakes we make um, is assuming that democracy is just the default position um, for the world in which we live, and that we don't really need to work at it um, to keep it. So um, once again, our book argues that it really takes quite a lot of work, um, uh, and it takes a lot of um, willingness to sacrifice um, on the part of each citizen. We have to sacrifice our notion that we'll ever get to the kind of perfect society that we want to get to. Um, uh, we have to recognize that what we're going to try to do, each of us, is make our society better, is try to make it more just, um, more moral, um, closer aligned with whatever our, my vision of the good is, but we're never going to get there all the way. And that is it. That's sacrifice. So um, yeah. I think that that it really is, uh, it, it is difficult. Um, and the case studies that we run through, Athens, Rome, the UK, the US, are in each, in each sense um, exceptional um, in their own times. So uh, yeah, I think that's an important thing for people to take on board, is that democracy isn't just simply an easy thing, the default, and we can mess with it as much as we please. Um, we actually need to work together to keep it going. Uh, and, and I should say the bulk of the book, and we'll get to that, is, goes, goes back as, as case studies in, in history, those you just mentioned. But uh, let me interrupt for a moment, because the way you were talking, uh, made me think about uh, Ronald Reagan and Tip O'Neill or Bill Clinton and Newt Gingrich. They understood them. They were not perfectionists. They understand this is going to be a deal. We're going to bargain. And, and if we're good at it, we'll push a good bargain for our side, maybe a not so good bargain. We will, we will end up. A, but they, they sort of assumed that from the start. This is, this is not uh, you're the bad guy. I'm the good guy. Uh, do, do, do you remember? I mean, am, am oh, I correct? Oh, absolutely. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, I think that's right. I mean, that uh, uh, Tip O'Neill and Ronald Reagan um, obviously had strong differences about, you know, what they thought was the best policy. They each knew that they weren't going to get their own notion of exactly the best policy. Um, and so, right, they cut deals that uh, were as good as they could get um, uh, at, the, at the time. Um, uh, same thing, I think, with uh, uh, Clinton and Gingrich. Um, that really is the tradition of American politics, uh, is making deals that are as good as you can get, hard bargaining. It doesn't mean that everyone is um, on the same page. They're not trying to get to some kind of happy consensus where everybody is optimally pleased. Rather, they're trying to get the best bargain available um, under the circumstances uh, in the recognition that we'll be doing this again, um, in which uh, the background bargain assumes we're going to operate uh, you know, on the basis of, as I as we say, these seven conditions, uh, which we can 
go through, uh, but that um, each time that we are in the room around the negotiating table, um, uh, we're each trying to get the best we can on the basis of the background rules that we've agreed to. Right. The first one is no boss. What is that? No boss basically means that if you want a democracy, you have to accept that uh, there is no one running the show except ourselves. Um, that ultimately we can elect representatives, we can have a strong executive, uh, we can have um, uh, all sorts of officials, but they're not our boss. Um, it is we the citizens who are ultimately our own boss. So what we say is, is that the basic definition of democracy, the term democracy, is just no boss but ourselves. That is collective self-government by citizens, um, that ultimately we make the decisions directly in the case of Athens or indirectly through representatives in most mon all modern uh, states. Uh, but still in all, we're the boss. And, and I presume that you, you choose a more colloquial expression for that rather than, than high, high principles, technical language, because that, that really goes with the spirit of the, the democracy or even the republican style of, of government. Is that correct? Yes, indeed. Uh, I mean, that ultimately, it's certainly possible to think about democracy as political philosophers do. Um, in sort of formal terms and technical terms, we can use all kinds of uh, uh, language that is uh, uh, familiar to political philosophers and unfamiliar to most other people. But I think the um, uh, basic idea of democracy is supposed to be something that we can all grasp and understand. And so we use this sort of colloquial term, no boss, thinking that really is what it means. Um, and everybody pretty much knows what it means to have a boss. The boss says, um, jump, and you say, how high, sir? Um, and the uh, uh, boss that exists in perhaps in your private life and you know, in your job or something um, uh, is someone who has control over you in various ways. You accept that because uh, uh, it is your job, but um, it cannot be that um, and have a, a democracy. There can't be anybody um, uh, who is simply giving me orders as a citizen um, that I haven't been part of making the rules that allows that order to be given. Great. A point about democracy and, and a republic. Uh, the founders favoring a republic because they fear democracy uh, might, might veer into, into lawlessness, demagoguery. Uh, specifically, is it that they favored a republic because they thought it would actually bring better actors to the bargaining table? But they understood, you know, factions, interests. They, they actually understood the bargain factor, even if they didn't quite put it that way, and that this would produce uh, better, uh, better bargainers on both sides. So I think the, um, the, the founders certainly um, knew that they were engaged in bargaining. Um, we look at what happened in Philadelphia in 1787, the Constitutional Convention. It was a bargain. Um, it was meant to strike a bargain, once again, that they all knew was imperfect. Nobody in that room got everything that they wanted, um, uh, but they all got something that was better than the alternative, uh, or at least the majority that voted for it um, felt that they had. 
The difference between democracy and republic is one that uh, Madison, for example, was very keen on. Uh, and I think actually it's based on an error. Um, I think it's based on the idea that the ancient democracies um, had no representative features at all, um, and that they were not in any way governed by law, that there was no rule of law in a democracy. And that was the kind of government that they feared. They had a conception of democracy um, based on their own reading of the available classical sources for them at that time. Uh, and they therefore wanted to make this strong distinction between the kind of government they wanted, which they called republic, borrowing that from the Roman uh, tradition, and uh, rejecting um, democracy, which they associated with it with the Greek tradition. But if we actually now look at what we know about the history of ancient Athens, it looks much more like a republic, um, or at least what Madison would have thought of as a republic. Um, and indeed, um, we know that there were certainly um, strongly democratic features um, in the Roman Republic. So um, what we suggest in the book is that this is uh, really a red herring, um, that is perfectly reasonable to speak of a democratic republic, that is, if we take the word democracy to mean the people have the ultimate power. Um, and if we take republic to ultimately mean there is a shared thing, um, a public thing, um, that that power is about, um, that we have something in common, um, then uh, thinking that in a democracy where the people are the ultimate rulers um, uh, under law um, and often ruling through their representatives and that they believe that there is something that they share, they have a common interest, um, uh, a common good um, uh, of some sort, then um, uh, we don't need to make a distinction between democracy and republic any longer. We recognize there are actually two features of this thing that many of us desire and want, um, that is collective self-government. You know, as you were talking about the Constitution, it, it really is, I mean, you don't need to answer this. I, I just think that it's a mistake to see that the, those those men gathering there were Americans. They weren't Americans. They were South Carolinians. They were New Yorkers. And they saw themselves as really distinct in, in that way. And so, okay, this is going to be, <laughs> this is going to be a deal. We're going to make a deal here. Uh, yeah, yeah. No, so so quite right. I mean, they really were representing very different interests. Um, the Southern delegates were absolutely determined that they had to defend the institution of slavery. Um, uh, the Northern delegates, uh, many of them were morally fundamentally opposed to slavery, um, but they realized that they were going to have to strike a, a deal that would be imperfect on either side. Um, uh, the Southern delegates wanted to have slavery written into the Constitution, um, which it wasn't. Um, uh, the uh, Northern delegates wanted to, would, some of them anyway, wanted to have slavery have a, a specific sunset provision that would go away. It would be uh, disappear at a certain time. That wasn't going to happen either. Uh, and so, they, uh, uh, so they, they made the best deal that was available to them, each of them um, figuring, well, we'll be back at the negotiating table and thinking, well, maybe we'll get more um, uh, right. as, uh, as it goes on. There will, the, you know, the, the, the capacity to amend the Constitution was built right into the Constitution. Um, and that's well, very important, um, that yeah. when you think about the bargain, um, uh, the bargain is, uh, needs to be remade um, over time as circumstances change. Yeah. 
in, in your Athens chapter, you, you go into great detail in, in certain things. But I should say you, you're one of the leading classical scholars in the country. An example of bargaining at, at work. How did Athens get through the Megara crisis? What was it and how did they get through it? Okay, so um, uh, the uh, big problem in the beginning of the um, uh, Peloponnesian War um, uh, was that uh, the um, uh, city-state of uh, Megara um, on the um, border with Athens um, uh, was a key choke point um, uh, that um, uh, would allow, if Athens could control Megara, they could stop the movement of um, Spartan troops um, out of the Peloponnese, and therefore they would have protected their own state from any overland uh, invasion. Um, and so they uh, uh, put a, um, basically, uh, Athens um, uh, blockaded uh, Megara, or rather they simply said that Megarian traders were not allowed to trade in any of the ports that Athens controlled. Uh, that was uh, actually that was a flashpoint that um, that led to war. Um, so in that case, um, uh, there wasn't a compromise because it was really a matter of be- between state negotiations that um, Athens felt it had the strong hand um, uh, and uh, was uh, simply able to push the. Uh, uh, Push the issue um, in a way that ultimately um, led to led to war. But uh, if we look at within Athens, um, there is a fundamental bargain that was made at really at the very beginning of what ultimately becomes um, uh, the Athenian democracy, uh, and that is uh, the real deep conflict between uh, the wealthy and the poor um, that uh, was ultimately negotiated uh, by Solon. Um, the Solon who had uh, not a position of boss, he wasn't a tyrant, he um, uh, was an official, um, an ele- uh, official or an elected official um, of the state, um, but uh, uh, he had to solved this really fundamental problem. Um, uh, The rich were basically forcing um, the poor Athenians into a condition of debt slavery. And the poor Athenians were becoming so desperate that they were ready to revolt um, against these conditions. And it looked as if the whole state of Athens was going to fall into civil war. Uh, So um, Solon recognized this was a catastrophe. He managed to negotiate a deal that was acceptable to both sides. Neither side got all that they wanted. The poor wanted redistribution of land. They didn't get that. Um, the rich wanted to be able to continue to um, you know, enforce their, uh, the debts that they had uh, contracted um, uh, with the, uh, on the poor. They didn't get that. Um, and Athens uh, went on to prosperity, ultimately. It wasn't perfect. The deal had some lumps downstream, um, uh, but uh, uh, it set up the possibility um, of the bargains that were later to be made that uh, allowed Athens to become more more completely democratic. Without that initial bargain um, between the two really seemingly opposed groups of rich and poor, um, Athens would never have developed into into a strong democracy. And you said it wasn't perfect. It's never perfect. That's right. <laughs> exactly the case. It's never perfect. That is, um, uh, uh, you know, that would have been the alternative title for the book. Never perfect. Um, how, how democracy survives. Uh, 
the you move to Rome, uh, which you say the first great republic. Uh, one thing the Romans did well was something you term scale up, which is crucial to a system's success. What is that process? Right. So scaling up means that if in order for a democratic system or democratic republic like that of Rome to survive, um, it has to be big enough, um, it has to be strong enough uh, to confront um, the external rivals um, that are dangerous to the state. So if a democracy is not able to assure its own security, it's not able to assure the welfare of its citizens, this is our second major condition, the first no boss and then security and welfare, then it's not going to work. Uh, and so uh, the democracy has to become big enough to confront the large and sometimes well-organized rivals, autocratic rivals um, that confront it. Rome did this um, by expanding their citizenship. Uh, the Romans recognized that they needed to get bigger and they had a pretty systematic policy of incorporating the neighboring peoples into the Roman state. Sometimes after a war, after the neighbors had been defeated, sometimes they created an alliance before there had to be a war, but there was a pathway to citizenship for non-Romans um, in Italy as they expanded. And this allowed Rome to become larger over time and have more and more people, more and more men who could serve in the, Roman, in the Roman military, who were willing to fight, who were eager to fight because they had skin in the game. Um, they were members of uh, the, uh, the Roman society. Yeah. Lots of inequality in Rome, obviously. But there was also, you say, a res, res publica, a common interest. You know, how, how does one instill that? I mean, maybe, maybe you can tell us in Rome, but also generally, you know, by implication here in the United States, how do we let those at the lower levels understand you have a common interest with people at the upper levels? Yeah, so this really gets to in some ways, the fundamental payoff of the book uh, is that the final condition that is essential for a democracy is civic education, is that a society that isn't able to give its citizens good reasons and reasons that are compelling, that are emotionally compelling, but are also that appeal to their reason for making the kind of sacrifices that citizens have to make to take on the kind of duties that citizens must take on, then uh, it won't work. And one of the things that civic education has to explain um, is what sorts of equality are necessary for a democratic republic. So political equality, um, some sense in which I actually, as an individual, do have equality of influence. My vote counts as much as the vote of someone else, uh, uh, but uh, it never um, uh, creates perfect economic equality. Once again, that has to be the, the, the whole question of what kind of equality um, is essential and necessary and expected within a 
democratic community has to be part of um, the education. Um, uh, same sort of thing with freedom. You know, what does it mean to be free? It's one of the fundamental goods uh, that democracy can offer. But what are we really offering you in terms of freedom? Freedom to do just whatever you please? No. Um, uh, freedom um, indeed to design your life um, without a boss telling you how to design your life. Um, uh, but certainly not freedom from the kind of responsibilities um, that uh, are essential um, for the citizen to fulfill. Those might be military. Um, uh, those might be uh, in terms of participation. Um, they might be in terms of just simply um, offering um, the fundamental dignity to your fellow citizens, even those with whom you deeply disagree on various um, uh, important questions. You jump ahead 12 centuries to uh, somewhere in England, uh, five days of something that leads to some kind of bargain. What was that? Okay, so there are a whole series of bargains um, uh, in England. The really famous one um, is the Magna Carta, the great medieval bargain um, uh, with bad King John. Um, uh, but Magna Carta was really one of only a whole series um, of political bargains that ultimately lead up, lead, lead up to the capacity to create a true civic bargain, that is, a bargain among citizens to rule themselves. That final bargain comes quite late um, in British history, uh, but the political bargains um, whereby the power of the boss, the king, was increasingly diluted, um, uh, in which more and more people um, had some say in the the decisions um, that are going to determine the outcome um, of you know, what's going to happen with our country. Uh, what well, one point you make is that uh, maybe popularly the Magna Carta is remembered as curbing the king, but it also set restrictions on the aristocrats too. That's right. Yeah, that's exactly so. No, that's right. So it was It was each side was giving up something and each side was um, uh, making some agreement uh, to um, sacrifice certain things that they, that, that they wanted. Um, so yeah, so this, once again, it is a, it is a, a bargain. Um, uh, King John tried to wheedle out of it um, uh, uh, a, a little bit later, but it was always remembered as the fundamental bargain. Um, and uh, it was then followed by a whole series of uh, bargains that ultimately um, end up with a constitutional monarchy, that is, um, a king. Um, uh, who is no longer the boss, uh, who is an important symbol, um, but is no longer calling the shots. Right. You, you, you imply that uh, when we get uh, major destructive crises like the English Civil War, the American Civil War, uh, we, we can really often see, maybe every time to some degree, a, a failure of, of bargaining or failure of the bargainers. Do you see that there was any bargain in the 1850s that might have averted the war yeah, I know that's, that's a, I know that's a speculative. That's, no, it's a really the American Civil War. Yeah, I mean I think the the reality um, at this point um, uh, is that the bargain needed to be made before that. Uh, by the time we got to the 1850s, uh, the slaveholders had become so entrenched um, in what they were convinced was necessary for their future uh, that they saw no way um, forward uh, but, to, but to fight. 
I think that if you back it up um, into the uh, uh, earlier 19th century, there are various points in which you could see that um, bargains that would have uh, uh, dismantled the structure of slavery, probably piece by piece, not all at once, but dismantled the structure of slavery could have happened. Um, uh, but uh, uh, there were various opportunities that were simply, simply missed, or there were bargains that ended up papering over the fundamental problem that really wasn't going to go away, that ultimately um, the core you know, issue that the Constitution, um, the constitutional bargain, um, needed to address through subsequent amendment uh, was the difference between the ideals in the Declaration of Independence, the ideals of um, human um, at, human beings as being fundamentally equal um, uh, at having a natural right um, to be free uh, and the um, reality of enslavement. So you know, that needed to be squared over time. Uh, I think there were opportunities earlier on, but by 1850, I'm not sure there was a bargain that was available on the table. Uh, last question. Let's jump to today. Do you see any bargains that might overcome the current pessimism? Or are there any bargainers, maybe I should ask, who have the confidence or at least the trust of both sides? Even if we disagree, I, I, I respect you as a, as a bargainer. What, what do you see? Yeah, I, I, uh, this worries me um, because I think that um, the current political circumstance um, uh, that we really see uh, the tendency towards zero-sum reasoning uh, and seeing politics as winner-take-all, uh, loser-gets-nothing, uh, as being deeply entrenched. It's like, you know, the um, good money drives out, or bad money drives out good. I mean, I think we have sort of basically a bad conception of democracy as winner-take-all, driving out the good, um, that is, um, uh, the civic bargain. So I tend to think um, we're going to have to go back to the basics um, and rethink um, how Americans um, educate themselves. Where I do see real optimism um, is in the surge of interest in civic education. Um, this is not something that is blue state, red state. Um, there's an interest across the board. Uh, I've been talking with a lot of people um, uh, in, who are, you know, on different sides of the political spectrum, all of whom think that there's really been a failure um, in how we educate ourselves um, as a citizenry. So if we can rebuild um, our civic education, uh, we will then ultimately, I think, elect representatives um, who indeed are not entrenched in these kinds of zero-sum, um, uh, hate-the-enemy um, kinds of ways of thinking about things. But I, that's, 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 that's going to take a while. Um, and the real question um, uh, before us now is, uh, can our country hold itself together for long enough to rebuild um, at the basic level of um, teaching ourselves, teaching our children, um, what it really takes to have a, a democratic society? And that's that remains to be seen. Um, I think we have to hope that there are enough decent-minded 
um, individuals still engaged in government um, are elected representatives who uh, recognize that uh, going off the cliff is possible. Um, but on the other hand, um, a rebuilding from the bottom, um, re rethinking uh, really what it is to be a citizen of the United States of America is also possible. Um, if we can hold out long enough um, to uh, get that kind of re-education going, um, uh, I think there, there is uh, a very bright uh, future for our country. I've always been ultimately an optimist um, about this country, um, and I'm clinging to that. Very good. The book is The Civic Bargain, How Democracy Survives. Professor Ober, thank you for joining us. Thank you very much, Mark.